Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, that's me, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London, you just never know. This week we come to you from Long Beach, California, and in particular, the famous, iconic Queen Mary, birth right here in the harbor, taking your calls at 888-887-3837, that's 888-88-PETER, and if you can't get through on the phones, you know the drill, you email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem, we will solve it right here on the air. We'll be talking a lot about the history of this ship, who sailed on it, who didn't who may still be sailing on it in spirit, otherwise known as spirits, and a few other things as the show continues. But here we are on Valentine's Day weekend, and you know what? Can I just make a statement here as a traveler and also as a male? I've had it with chocolate. I've had it with roses. I've had it with champagne. Can we be a little bit more creative when it comes to Valentine's Day weekends, of which this is a part? I mean, think about this. Try to get a restaurant reservation on Valentine's Day. You're paying a 50% surcharge because everybody feels the need uh, or the obligation to do what? Go out with their significant other. And then, of course, all the hotels and resorts weigh in with ridiculously overpriced packages that all include, duh, chocolate, champagne, and roses. I mean, can we be any more visionless if we tried? Well, guess what? I'm here to share with you some very interesting Valentine's Day opportunities that have nothing to do with chocolate, roses, or champagne. Or if you really want to be smart, don't go anywhere this weekend. Get romantic next weekend at one-third the price and spend that other two-thirds on 
perhaps a piece of jewelry. I don't know. But listen to this. If you happen to be in Panama City, in Panama, you know how they're celebrating Valentine's Day? Well, the Westin Hotel down there is doing a special tour that's taking you into the heart of Casco Viejo. It's a great part of the city. By the way, they have great microbreweries there. But guess who's leading the romantic Valentine's Day tour? Ex-gang members. That's your tour. How about this? In Los Angeles, right here in L.A., now you don't necessarily equate Valentine's Day with the L.A. Zoo, but maybe now you will when you find out they've got Sex and the City Zoo. That's their package, their Valentine's Day celebration. And why are you going there? Because it's dedicated to romance in the animal kingdom. Gee, do you think you could visit and view some mating? I don't know. But here's the thing. They actually have a deal uh, for ages 21 and up. I love they have an age restriction here. Uh, And basically, they're going to have wine and talk about animals and what they do up close when they don't think you're looking. So much for that. Here's one. Uh, How about this? In, uh, in Minneapolis, they have one. Now, this one, it comes out of the category of you better be in love for this one. All right? You can't make this up. You want to get hooked on love in Minneapolis at this time of the year, in February? Do you know what the Hotel Meridian is doing? They're taking you ice fishing. You're going to go out there in a little hut on the lake and freeze your you-know-what's off and then hope for a pike. <laughs> uh Trust me, alcohol is involved. Because if you're going to be out there on that lake in that temperature, you're getting tanked whether you catch a fish or not. But they do it. And, and these are just part of the, of, the pal- of the packages. And by the way, you'll find all those on our website at, uh, at petergreenberg.com. But think about this. It's time to be a little counterintuitive here. It's time to be a contrarian. And don't just fall into the, you know, the stereotypical approach to an overrated holiday to begin with. You know, you should be romantic all year long, not just because there's a designated holiday and a conspiracy of the greeting card companies. I mean, you don't need chocolates. I mean, you do, but not for this day. And you don't need champagne, you know. And then, by the way, you could save all that money that you're spending on chocolates and champagne and flowers and get on an airplane and fly to places that, you know, would not necessarily be your first thought for Valentine's Day, like Costa Rica or Guatemala or how about this? Now, this one I kind of like, the one in Sausalito. There's one in Sausalito. You fly out there and at the, at the mansion at Casa Madrona, but you're not spending a lot of time in your room except for all the obvious things. You're going to go learn to sail. Now, maybe there's a glass of wine involved with that and you're out there on the bay and it's romantic. It's all romantic. I love how the people pronounce it. This is romantic. It's like Fern Drescher, you know. Anyway, Fran Drescher or Fern, her little known sister. But you know what I'm saying. I mean, be a little contrarian. And if you're a smart traveler, why would you want to overpay on any weekend? Seriously. You want to do Valentine's Day and be romantic? Hey, Chinese takeout. Eat in. And then next weekend, blow the money because you'll get three times the value. It really is as simple as that. And, you can, and, and, and by the way, this applies to major sporting events. This applies to annual holidays. It applies to parents with kids who want to go somewhere, but they can't take the kids out of school. You know what? 
Yeah, you can take the kids out of school. Do what my parents did with me. Cut a deal with the teachers for special extra credit assignments and take your kids traveling the week after Thanksgiving, the week after New Year's, when nobody else is traveling. You'll own Disney World. You'll own the theme parks. You'll own the resorts. You'll pay one-third the price. Have them read an extra book and do a book report or maybe interview one of the locals there about their experiences in that foreign country. And guess what happens? It's an educational experience, and it's a win-win for you and your pocketbook. You're not standing in line. You're not getting bad service. You're not overpaying. So bring along a photograph of the roses, the chocolates, and the champagne. Show them to your significant other, and then tell him or her where you're taking them with all the money you're saving by not overpaying for the Valentine's Day deals. It's really as simple as that. I can't believe people fall for this. They fall for it because they think if they don't, they're going to be in the doghouse. You know what you should do? Do what I do, and then if you happen to have a dog, give them the chocolate. Now, that's not usually healthy for the dog, but you know what I'm saying. Bottom line is, don't succumb to marketing when it's really not that appropriate. Spend the money where it makes the most sense, where you're giving a more appropriate message of love and care and concern, not to mention budget. All right? So whether it's the gang members taking you for a tour in Panama, learning to sail in Sausalito, uh, ice fishing in Minnesota, in the hut, you know what? You're going to have to cuddle. How about that? You're going to cuddle there because you're going to be freezing. Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Joining us now is someone who I'm happy to say welcome back. The last time we did the show from the Queen Mary, he came on board. But again, he basically runs the joint. Commodore Everett Horde, who is the number one cheerleader for the Queen Mary. Is that safe to say? Yes, absolutely. But also historian as well. Yes. And today you brought me a, a little bit of a, a temporary present. I know I can't keep it. But for show and tell purposes, I love this. Because here's a ship that started sailing in 1930. 1936, Peter. And what am I holding in my hand? A menu from the first class restaurant dated Sunday, June 21st, 1936. And I'm amazed they had so many items on this menu. And you know what's even more amazing, uh, Peter, is that if you didn't find anything you liked out of all those they'd items, they'd just make it for you. They'd make it for you. And I only know of a couple times in the ship's entire life that they weren't able to accommodate. And uh, there was uh, one occasion, 1954, a very well healed passenger asked for a rattlesnake steak 1500 miles in mid-atlantic and uh, of course the chef scratched his chin and says well sir we'll get back to you and he returned uh, a short time later with a large silver salver and waiters flanking either side shaking baby rattles and he <laughs> triumphantly lifts the lid and three eels had been promoted to rattlesnake status <laughs> and did the passenger know the difference oh yes he oh, did. okay he, good. He, just, he thought it was wonderful that was the spirit of the ship though but you know when you think about a modern-day cruise ship with the, with the ability they have in their kitchens today, especially with mass cruising, yes. where you're serving 6,000 meals at a mealtime, mm -hmm. 
right? With 6,000 people, that's, yes. that's passengers and crew. How many passengers were they, were they feeding every day on this ship? Uh, in the Queen Mary, they were feeding about 2,000 passengers and up to 1,250 crew. And on a five-day crossing, that was close to 50,000 meals that was prepared on board. Which means they had to load all that stuff. They you know, No place to stop across the Atlantic. So they had to load it. They had to keep it preserved. They had to refrigerate it. Oh, yes, yes. The Queen Mary had uh, all the latest refrigeration te technology uh, for the time. And, uh, you know, it was just a, a vast city at sea. I mean, uh, much like today, but only I'm sure it was a lot, a lot more interesting. <laughs> now, I'm thinking, you know, 1936, it's meat and potatoes time, right? So I'm sure that their, their, their beef or their prime rib was a big seller. Oh, yes. Right? Oh, yes. Uh, cold or hot. Uh, it was offered on their cold menu as well. Well, you know why they offer it on the cold menu. It's whatever didn't sell the night before. <laughs> I, that, I'm not that stupid, Everett. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but what was the biggest surprise, as you're going through the artifacts, right, and this menu is amazing because it's so beautifully engraved, mm -hmm. um, and it's great that you, where'd you find this? Uh, we have a very um, uh, vast archive. We have probably have 50,000 artifacts in our archive here. In and do you rotate them? Uh, we do. We do ro rotate them from time to time. What's the most surprising thing in, in your archives? Oh, my. Um, it is a wealth of, uh, of interest for me. Um, we found uh, everything from uh, Father Christmas's handmade robe out of flag materials because, you know, people at sea are very keen on creating, what, creating with what they have on board uh, to uh, the bishop's robes that were used in the Catholic chapel. So I'm assuming that when Cunard said goodbye to the ship and it was bought and sailed over here for the last time, whatever was on the ship stayed on the ship. Um, all but a couple of pieces. Uh, there was a large medallion of Queen Mary that used to be in the main hall, uh, made of marble, done by Lady Hilton Young. And that was removed and presented to the royal family as a gift for their uh, support and association over the years and now resides in Marlborough House, Queen Mary's last home. Um, and the only other thing I know that they kept was the uh, royal standard that flew on board for a short time while Queen Mary visited in uh, the 25th of May, uh, 1936. Now, we're doing the show today from the Queen's... The Queen's Salon. And yes. what used to happen in this room? Well, as the first-class main lounge, this was the entertainment room in the Queen Mary. It dancing, was the music room. dancing. Dancing, recitals, uh, string concerts. Um, Cole Porter has played the piano in this room. Okay, now I have to ask a very stupid question. Looking around this room, I'm counting three... Yeah, three fireplaces. Did they work? Uh, these fireplaces are strictly for looks, Peter. The, they never worked? They never worked. Um, you know, fire, not icebergs or rough seas, is a sailor's worst enemy. So the only working fireplace in the Queen Mary was just down the alleyway here in the first class smoking room. Riding along in my automobile My baby beside me at the wheel Cruising and playing the radio with no particular place to go. Everett, when people come on the ship today, you know, there are people on the ship today who were never even born, you know, when this ship was even sailing, let alone when it started sailing, because it sailed for 30 years. Yes, sir. What's their biggest surprise? Because some of them who will come on the ship today have been on cruise ships. 
you know, the cruise ships today, I mean, they're like, you know, department stores that fell over and float. I mean, it's, it's a different kind of feeling, isn't it? It's very much different, Peter. They're, um, while beautiful and uh, magnificent, I love traveling in them and do a lot. Um, the Queen Mary's different. She was a ship of state. Uh, the focus of the nation was uh, on this ship and being a transatlantic liner designed before the advent of air travel. Um, and the nation with the fastest, largest ship uh, had the cream of the travel industry in those days. And so the Queen Mary represents all of that. But being a ship of state, she was built out of the finest materials available at the time because she was the representative of the nation of Great Britain. Which you couldn't build those materials today and get it approved. Never, never. There are 50, 56 different species of rare woods used uh, within the Queen Mary's decorations. Um, there's uh, all sorts of, uh, there were all sorts of satin materials and, and things like that used. And of course, everything today, as you well know, has to um, be uh, in coordinate or in uh, fire protection. Fire protection with the solace. Was there ever tools. safety of life at sea? Was there ever a fire on this boat? Oh, there were a few fires along the way uh, in the Queen Mary's career. Uh, she had an excellent fire safety record. Uh, both Queen Mary and Queen Elizabeth did in their Cunard days. Uh, a couple of fires that yeah, Queen Elizabeth mind. didn't in its after Cunard days. It <laughs> it burned and sank in the harbor in Hong Kong. Yeah, she had some help, I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah, without, yeah, you knew that was the case when you see the guys getting off the ship already dressed in their suitcases. Exactly. Would we call that arson at sea? I think so. Oh, that sir. was torched. Absolutely. Yeah. But when it was sailing for Cunard, it did okay. Oh yes. Uh, the Queen Elizabeth had an excellent fire safety record, as with the Queen Mary. Um, a couple of fires that come to mind, the uh, paneling was set on fire in the observation and, uh, one time by some disgruntled stewards during a strike. Uh, another uh, fire was started when a cigarette was uh, sucked back into a porthole. Um, that happened on a princess ship uh, not too many years ago. Uh, but the, uh, there, I think there was a fish uh, deep fryer that uh, set on fire some of the lagging uh, that went up out to the exhaust. Uh, just typical fires that happen on land as they do today. But when people come on the ship today, right, I mean, I'm going to ask you what you think is the most surprising thing for you, but what's the most surprising thing for them? I think the most surprising thing for them is the sheer majesty and size of the ship. Uh, I mean, literally, this is the Empire State Building practically lying on its side. And, and the decorations compare with the Waldorf. I mean, um, it is, it's just something very splendid. And, you know, I spent a lot of time with Captain Jones, her last captain, before he passed on in England. And he used to commonly tell me, Everett, the Queen Mary is the closest thing to a living being that I ever commanded. And he meant it. And I think the Queen Mary very much has a sort of a soul. Um, maybe it's something that's left in her by the people that traveled in her that were so famous and uh, that they shaped the world we live in today. See, I'll tell you what strikes me, is, as, and I consider myself a pretty educated traveler, but it's still a surprise for me to walk on this ship because when you go on the current ships, you don't have prominent decks like you have on this ship. No. You don't have these wide, wide decks where people stroll. You, 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 you don't even have decks half the time. That's right? true. It, it, it's all interior. Here you have wide wood, I mean, wooden decks. Yes. That, you know, you, you can see people in their Sunday finest in those days taking the promenade, literally the promenade. Oh, yes, definitely. There's actually three and a half acres of deck space in the Queen Mary, and the enclosed promenade, just one side of it, is 724 feet long. 
And uh, while the city of Long Beach wisely moved some of the restaurants up in the starboard promenade, but when the ship was at sea, uh, four circuits around was one mile. And uh, Olympic runner Lord Burley did a lap in less than a minute in evening wear on the ship's sea trials in 1936. (laughs) (laughs) And he was drinking at the time, I'm sure. (laughs) Hey, here's one that's interesting to me. You also brought me a, a program of events from 1949 on this ship. And what I find interesting, from February of 1949, well, we're in February now, but here's my question. At 6.10 p.m., and they had entertainment on the ship and stuff, but this is the interesting one. At 6.10 p.m., they had a news broadcast. Yes, sir. That was the BBC broadcast, and it was done at 12 and around 6 o'clock in the evening. Over the radio. And over the radio. And over the ship's radio. Over the ship's, uh, uh, what the British call the tannoy. Yeah. Uh, the wireless. A wireless, a PA system. And it would uh, be broadcast in this very room, and this is where people would keep up with current events. Of course, there was a ship's newspaper that was printed every day also of called course, the Ocean but, Times. But I love the idea that they would gather in this room to hear the news on the radio. Yes. Amazing. Amazing. It was actually in this room that uh, the first-class passengers on the 3rd of September heard the news that war had been declared. So, And they were at sea. And they were at sea. Which then became, they were a target. They were a target. It was announced that submarines could be lying in the track, hoping to sink the Queen Mary. Hello? Uh, this is your captain speaking. There is absolutely no cause for alarm. It's a We've just gone from ship history to city history, and our next guest knows a little bit about that. She's the executive director of the Historical Society of Long Beach. It's Julie Bartolotto. How are you, Julie? I'm well. How are you? Good. I mean, you're a California girl, but were you ever expecting to see this much history in this city? I had no idea that that would become my career when I moved here. But I mean, when you moved here, though, a lot of history. Yes. What's the biggest you know, eye-opener for you when you first came down here? Because Long Beach was always, to me, when I first moved to California, I was 21 years old, and nobody came to Long Beach. It was sort of like this little sleepy thing that nobody knew what, what, what it was. And then all of a sudden, in 1968, but you know, this is before I came here, of course, then they moved the Queen Mary here, and then the Spruce Goose showed up, and a few other things. But it still was considered like... You're going to Long Beach, right? And then all of a sudden, you guys basically turned around. Well, I came here in the late 80s to go to college. So it was about going to college for me. And one of the things that um, I noticed was that we would come sometimes downtown to see, to uh, eat at Supermax. And that's when a lot of the historic buildings were being torn down. And I noticed that. And then later in my career, I clearly was a lot more involved in learning about the history of Long Beach and understanding what was going on in downtown. But there are a lot of buildings that haven't been torn down. That's right. You've got a couple. My my mom grew up in Los Angeles, and she used to tell me about this high-rise apartment building in Long Beach. It's still there. The Villa Riviera. Yes. I mean, what a building. Yes, it's a fabulous building. I know. And and is it now now co-op or condos? They're condos. They are, yes. And not far from the convention center. Right, not far. Yeah. So what's the, for you, living here and working with the Historical Society, the one piece of history that people overlook about Long Beach? I think the neighborhoods. It's a really livable city, can live and work in the city and have a 
20 minute commute, maybe not on the freeway. It's very nice. Well, a 20 minute commute not on the freeway in Los Angeles means you have your own private helicopter. <laughs> not in Long Beach. No, not in Long Beach, I know. Uh, but in terms of the architecture, you know, we just mentioned that one place. There's still a lot of architecture to see here. There's a lot of great architecture, and there's a lot of great modern, mid-century modern architecture as well, which is um, becoming more recognized. You mentioned all the buildings that were being torn down. Obviously, you're at the forefront of trying to keep the buildings that are still here, still here. I'm with the Historical Society, and we're a small museum, so we collect the archives of the city, but I have been on the Cultural Heritage Commission, and there is an active preservation community in Long Beach that overlaps definitely with what I do. You, you know, you talk about the archives. My mother used to tell me stories about the great Long Beach fire and also the earthquake, the earthquake that happened here that was really devastating. 1933, there was a large earthquake on the Newport Inglewood Fault, and it was actually um, centered in Newport Beach. But Long Beach was um, more built up than Newport and had a lot of damage. Every school in the district in the city was damaged. Wow. But then they rebuilt. Absolutely. I know. And so when you talk about the port, a lot of history there too. Yes. It was very important. It's, it is very important, and it has always been important in the city's development. Um, founded in 1911, and uh, it's growing still, and a huge economic driver, huge benefit to the community I mean, as can, well. It can still grow, huh? It is. <laughs> There's space for that? Apparently. <laughs> <laughs> for you, when people come to visit you, right, the out-of-towners to Long Beach, what's the biggest surprise for them that they weren't expecting to find? That's a good question. <laughs> That's why I have a show. What you, I think, or, or, or what do you want to show them that's going to wow them? Long Beach has a really interesting history, and if it were in any other part of the country, it would be a much larger metropolis, con considered much m larger than it is. We don't have a, we have one radio station, we have one daily newspaper, no, you know, no network TV. So we're really in the shadow of L.A., and I think... Um, Long Beach is, is a really large city, and it would have a, it has a large impact, and it's just overlooked in many ways. Including your airport. I love your airport. The airport's fabulous. It really is. It's, it's a little boutique. It is. I mean, I, and I hope they keep saying, they, they save that architectural notion of being able to walk out on the tarmac to get to your plane. <laughs> I mean, those are, that, there's a certain romance to that airport. Yes, and there's wonderful... Um, um, New Deal art in throughout the airport on the mosaics on the floor. Um, the New Deal was important in Long Beach, and you can really see that at that airport, and that's really cool. And they've kept it. They have. Yeah, see, I, made I, an important decision to do that. Is there somebody doing an art tour of the airport? They should. There are tours of the airport, and I believe the art is on that tour. It yes. better be on the tour. Right? You can't miss it. Well, you can see the floors, the tile floors, when you walk through the terminal. Right. If you are sitting next to a small child or someone who is acting like a small child, please do us all a favor and put on your mask first. Every week on this show, we talk about great volunteer vacation opportunities. Uh, we all talk about buzzwords like farm to table, 
which is now being misused all over the place, uh, like ecotourism used to be. But my next guest knows a little bit about both, about volunteerism and Farm to Table, because she's the creator of Farm Lot 59. Her name is Sasha Cano, right here in Long Beach. Tell me about that, Sasha. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah. We have a half-acre plot in Long Beach, right in the middle of the city. Which is like, you it's sort of unexpected to see it, but there it is. Absolutely. How did it start? In 2008, I started a community garden, and as lovely as that was, I saw the need for production farming here in the city. All right, so what is Sasha growing in that garden? We grow beautiful heirloom varieties of flowers, vegetables, fruit, and we have bees for honey, our delicious honey. And where does it go? It goes to the local restaurants, straight to them. So we're talking real farm to table. Absolutely. Can someone come out there and work on the farm? We hire people, we train farmers, and we have volunteer opportunities in our children's area. So what do the kids do? The kids, other than trample and <laughs> rip it all apart. Yeah, guys yeah. like me. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, they like to play in the mud and the muck, and we have an educator on staff, so we do field trips and that sort of thing. But the bottom line is, it's not just educational, you're actually providing a service. Correct. When we talk farm to table, you know, at least so many restaurants now, when you look at a menu, will not only identify the dish, they'll tell you where it came from, which farm, the name of the farmer who grew it, right? Correct. And we are on the menu in a handful of restaurants in town, um, and we grow with them and for them specifically. We plan crops ahead of time and have really dialed it in. Okay, now I'm going to ask a very stupid urban question. Mm -hmm. no, no, here it comes. Mm -hmm. Here it comes. It's only a half acre. Biointensive. So we grow, there's no waste. We grow exactly what we're going to need. So we are the specialty items. We are the microgreens. We are the beautiful purple leaf with the green stem that everybody only needs one of. So you're not growing corn? No. And you're not growing big tomatoes? No melons, no <laughs> winter squash, no corn. We do tomatoes of very various sizes, but nothing too big. No gargantuans. No, everything's small and specialty. Okay, so what's the most unusual thing you're growing? Right now, we have a lot of different mustard greens. It's winter here now, which is our prime yes, time Yes, and the to temperature grow. drops to a whopping 47 degrees. Oh. I wore a sweatshirt this morning. Okay, fine. I did. You're talking to somebody who's from New York, okay? Got it? Okay. You get no sympathy from me. Um, we are in the greens business right now. A lot of greens, a lot of salad, a lot of mustards and choys. And we do the flowers from the greens and the little pretty violas that the pastry chefs love. And do the chefs actually come to the farm? Every Thursday. Really? They pick it up. I coordinate with them pre-season what they're going to want to have on their plates. And we grow it for them. And then they come every week and pick it up. Very, very cool. And can the public come too? Currently, we are in remodel of our farm stand. So as soon as we get that back up, we will. But the bottom line, if I tell you that I'm a somewhat large for my size four-year-old, you'll let me come in and trample? Absolutely. We're there every day. You're more than welcome to come and tour and have a field trip and have a visit. But you say you have an educator on the premises. What am I going to learn? You're going to learn how to... Other than not to trample. Right yeah. now, exactly. What the difference is with um, the different crops and how to rotate them. We do composting. We do worm lessons. Any kind of thing. Worm lessons. 
worms? The kids lately. We have trained worms. We do. Stop it. They eat garbage on command. Do they really? They do. You got the worms trained. I do. Wow, I like that. Trained worms. We're gonna get you out in the road. <laughs> But are a lot of people coming there and then realizing they can do this in their own backyard? Too? It is. So it's completely scalable. So even though we're on just a half an acre, you could scale it up to 50 acres or scale it down to a backyard. And some people have done that. Absolutely. We've had a lot of people come through in the six years we've been there. And a lot of them have gone on to bigger farms and live in their small farm dreams. I love it. Where'd they go? They went off to a bigger farm. A bigger farm. <laughs> If you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. I am a passenger. Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. Joining us now, our managing editor of our website, by the way, speaking of petergreenberg.com, Stephanie Irvin. So what's on the website this week, Stephanie? This week we're talking about the best day to buy plane tickets. Now, you know, there's been a... An, an ongoing argument about that. Um, I know that our good pal Scott McCartney did a piece in the Wall Street Journal saying it was Sunday night. I disagreed with our good friend Scott, and I said, no, I think it's Tuesday night at midnight, uh, and I can elaborate. What are we saying on our website? Tuesday night and Sunday night, but just don't Oh, we're covering our bases, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, and, well, and the reason for that is, and there's a difference, and I, and I think I can explain it. On Sunday nights, not that many people are doing business reservations, meaning business travelers. So there's a lot of inventory out there that's available. Tuesday night, the reason why it's a good idea to do it Tuesday night is because a lot of airfare sales, be that what they are, because they're not that they're few and far between, but when they do come out, they kind of sneak them out over the weekends. And so by the end of the weekend, all the matching and fare cutting is over, and then people have to book their tickets, their discounted tickets, which means that once you book a ticket, you've got 24 hours in which to pay for it, right, Stephanie? So mm -hmm. when it gets, you, they book it on a Monday. So by midnight Tuesday night, when that 24-hour period comes in and they haven't paid for it, all those unpaid for fares come flooding back into the airline's rest systems, not to their website, to their rest systems, which means you got to do what your generation doesn't like to do, Stephanie. <laughs> it's called pick up the phone and talk to a human being. Really? So, yeah, yeah, really. Do we have to? Yes, you do. Which means that the best time to buy a ticket, we give you the best time, but the best way to do it is by talking to a human being. And it's interesting because they've shown that millennials prefer to book through apps. They prefer to book online. They're more yes, silent Yes, and, and basically they prefer to be losers because <laughs> there's only 51% of the available inventory is shown on those apps and shown online. Oh, really? Airlines hold back about 49% because you're, you're seeing only what the travel provider wants to make available online. So if you do it online, it can be convenient and easy and happy and you don't have to talk to anybody. You can be in your bathrobe at 3 in the morning. 
but you're disenfranchising yourself from 49% in many cases of the available inventory because you didn't ask a human being. That's amazing. Aren't you glad you joined the show today? I am. All right. What else we got going? Well, we recently had your top destinations for 2016. We did. And there are a lot of surprises in that. Yes. Uh, and and some, uh, one of which is in there that a lot of people might find very controversial. I'm telling you right now, it will become a top destination of 2016. It's Iran. Because as the nuclear sanctions have been lifted, because Iran was in apparently a very, very fast compliance with all their uh, their mandates to dismantle their program, uh, the economic sanctions have been lifted, and now travel and tourism is becoming viable to uh, to Iran. I just got an email today inviting me to go. I'm telling you, it's going to happen. And what better way to break down barriers and building bridges than travel and tourism? I can show you all the countries where that's happened. It's going to happen to Iran and many other countries, but you'll see that if you go to our website. And give me one, one more item on the website here. Snacks returning to United. Oh, that's please. a big deal. Oh, jeez. You know what? Airline food is an oxymoron. Let's call it what it is. <laughs> but, but it's nice to see that now if you're flying in the back of the plane uh, on many, many long-haul flights, United now is actually giving you free snacks. Now, don't get excited. They're not going to get seconds, <laughs> uh, but they're going to give you a packet something, right? Well, you get a waffle. You get a, well, yeah. With caramel in the morning, and then uh, you get nuts. That special nuts. Pretzels. Pretzels. That's it. Okay, but you know what? <laughs> it's better than what was going on last year where you got nothing. Yes. And everything was per- for purchase. Right. I know. Now, you're a Long Beach girl. Yes. And we're in Long Beach. Yes. So tell me something I don't know about Long Beach I need to know, that our audience needs to know if they're coming here. I think that Long Beach is often overlooked because people often see it as a blue-collar town, but really, you have a really wide mix. And my favorite thing about it is it's the second most diverse city in the country. Tell me more. We have the largest Cambodian population outside of Cambodia. Which, of course, means great Cambodian food. Yes. We have a Cambodia town. It's a whole area. There are shops, restaurants. One of my best friends is actually half Cambodian, and so I was in her wedding, and we got the full... We had several outfits we had to change into. We had our makeup done. We had flowers in our hair. It was an all-day And the event. catering was done by? Cambodians. Thank you. Okay, so we got Cambodians. When you say diversity, give me some other examples. Well, for example, in my high school, I would say that it was evenly divided, that there was no majority or minority. It was pretty equally divided between white kids, black kids, Latino kids, and Asian kids. So for me, I've always grown up where white people weren't the majority. We were just simply part of the mix. And simply, look, integration in this particular city was inevitable because of the makeup of the city. Yes. Which yeah. is great. So you got great cuisine, mm-hmm. got great ethnic opportunities, yeah. right? Great cultural heritage. Yeah. And then, of course, there's, uh, you know, singing. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think it's often overlooked because it's so close to L.A. So people often think if they're coming to this area from out of town, they're going to go to L.A. itself. But people from L.A., I notice, don't really come down here that often, and I think they're missing out. And when your friends come to visit you, are they blown away? I think so, yeah. And especially if I tell them that we have free yoga on the bluff overlooking the ocean. You don't get that everywhere. And who's doing this free yoga? It's uh, an organization. They have a yoga yoga studio on 3rd Street, and they have it every day at 11 a.m. And then they have it... um, Is that why you're so late to work at my office every day? Yes, Okay, thank you. I couldn't come in because I'm having free yoga. Having yoga. Okay, but that's cool that it's free. Yeah. Yeah. And about uh, 100 people come each time. Not bad. It's pretty amazing. And they also have it at 6 p.m. during the summer. So you're never in the office. No. I'm just at yoga. (laughs) 
Stephanie Urban. We're getting coffee. Uh, oh, see, you're, you're in such trouble now. You're so busted. <laughs> no, but it really is. Long Beach is a sleeping giant. It mm-hmm. really is. And yes. it, it's a very cool place. And, and great history. Whether you're coming in by boat, which I like to do, or you're landing at the airport, which is the coolest little airport. Yes. Right? Or you're going down Pine Street for all the great restaurants. Yeah. And, and by the way, coming up is going to be Keely Smith, somebody that you know who's the executive editor of the Long Beach Post, who knows all about that stuff. Yes. I know. She even likes coming to the Queen Mary. I know. Unbelievable. <laughs> Stephanie Urban from our website, petergreenberg.com. Thanks for joining us, Stephanie. We have clearance, Clarence. Roger, Roger. What's our vector, Victor? Now I radio clearance. Over. That's Clarence. Over. Over. Roger. Huh? Uh, joining us now, someone who know, who's a local, someone who knows a lot about this place, because she exe- she's the executive editor of the Long Beach Post, Keely Smith. Hey, Keely. Hey, how's it going, Peter? Cool. I mean, my mom was a Los Angeles native. She was born in, in, uh, in 1915. And she used to tell me so many cool stories about how cool Long Beach was at a time when I'm going, really? It's really cool? Because when she was telling me those stories, Long Beach really wasn't that cool. And then it became cool again, didn't it? It did. It's going through, yeah, quite a renaissance. In what way? Um, I would say I, the downtown is probably the biggest example. Um, Pine has Pine Street has gone through. I mean, there's... Hot restaurants. Uh, there are so of- <laughs> many restaurants on Pine Street, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, a good, a good night scene, um, and you know, a thriving hipster population, which is probably a sign of uh, it being up and coming. You used sure. the word hipster. I, I did. I haven't heard that word in a while. There are hipsters <laughs> here. Um, <laughs> I like bohemians too. I, I would, uh, yes, <laughs> I would say so. Um, although they probably don't want to be labeled as such. <laughs> and you also have a pretty good airport. We have one of the best airports in the country. Um, yeah, we were we were ranked number two over the well, summer. Well, you know, you got put back on the map by JetBlue. Yeah. You know, they basically figured out all these empty, unused slots. They got them. They started flying here. American tried to beat them, and they couldn't. And the cool thing about the Long Beach Airport, even though I know you're building jetways now and you're getting a little more modern, I remember when JetBlue started flying here, I got to participate in remakes of Casablanca Every time I boarded a plane, because people forget, that's where they shot it. They shot Casablanca at the Long Beach Airport when Humphrey Bogart walks out with Ingrid Bergman with the plane with the engines rotating going, we'll always have Paris. Yes. It was done (laughs) right here. It's a very cool airport and not congested. Not congested. You can show up. I've I've shown up about probably 20 minutes before my flight has taken off and been able to zip right through security and get on. I mean, they don't recommend that. But uh. no. Plus, you got a great aquarium. <laughs> a great aquarium. Uh, yeah, great. And an interactive components. aquarium, by the way. Very cool things to do Award-winning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, you mentioned the restaurants. I got to ask you, because you're the executive editor of the Long Beach Post, but you also like to eat. Where do you like to go? I love to eat. Um, my favorite place is Michael's. Why? Uh, well, I have the Neapolitan-style pizza. Um, probably the most authentic I've had, and well, it's light and chewy. It doesn't feel too heavy. Um, <laughs> great uh, burrata cheese appetizers. Now we're talking. Okay. <laughs> and that's Michael's. What about, you know, people talk about Long Beach, but they don't often talk about Belmont Shore. Oh, um, places to go on Belmont Shore? Yeah. Tavern on Two is great. I think St. and Second, which just popped up in September, is awesome. It's got farm-to-table options. Um, yeah. Okay, so now what's the biggest surprise restaurant in Long Beach for you? Biggest surprise? Well, when I moved here, I was surprised that Kianina, a restaurant um, of its caliber, would be in Long Beach. They, you know, they, their cattle is, is all raised in 
Oregon, and it's it's definitely farm to table. Um, just I don't know. Check out the pictures online; it's amazing. The taste is incredible, and the service is astounding. It's now, Long Beach was upgrade. always presented to me, and you know this is perception sometimes beating reality, but always was always perceived and presented as like a blue collar town. Is it still? I would say it's slowly shrugging off that reputation. I think the older generation still perceives it that way. You still have the port. You still have a lot of socioeconomic diversity. By the way, diversity. the port is so cool. It's great. Yeah. And I will bring my boat down here. I'm telling you, I'll bring my boat down here and just sail around because you're seeing boats. Some of these boats haven't moved in 25 years. I mean, it's like, very, it's like history on parade. I'm not talking about the, the Queen Mary. I'm talking about all the other boats out there. True, true. They are a leader, a leader in sustainability, too. I shouldn't have just thrown them out there like that. But uh, yeah, they're um, a huge economic engine for Long Beach. Um, but we're also growing. I mean, there's a new Mercedes-Benz plant that the, the mayor unveiled. They're getting, um, they're getting way more high-tech firms to come. Uh, yeah, SpaceX. What's the difference between the port of Long Beach and the port of Los Angeles? Ooh, good question. I think relatively slight. I mean, they, they definitely compete. Um, <laughs> we, we, Tim Ahern, like, our engineer, is like raising saying, his hand like he's going to win a prize for the answer. I would say the main difference that I've seen in coverage is that Long Beach definitely seems to be leading in sustainability measures, um, really trying to, you know, curb their greenhouse gases and be efficient with their energy. And also their, their cargo um, has... They've been increasing their cargo traffic all year after having that huge slowdown um, this time last year. We just ran an article about that when we covered the state of the port last Thursday. Um, and uh, the L.A. hasn't quite seen the same um, traffic. So, Well, speaking of boats in the harbor, we're on one right now, the, the Queen Mary. How much of an impact has this ship had in Long Beach? Um, huge. It brings in tons of tourists. I mean, that the Queen Mary and the Convention Center are pretty much go-tos. Um, when I didn't live in Long Beach, the reason I came to Long Beach first was to see the Queen Mary. And Really? Where, yeah. where were you living at the time? Uh, well, I was going to school on the East Coast. At where? University of New Hampshire. Okay. And my brothers had just started school up in Thousand Oaks. So you were freezing. <laughs> I was in the winter, but yes. I, I was here in the summer. Okay, so. so you came out to see it. Yeah. But why did you want to come see this ship? Um, the, the history, it's a landmark. I mean, I'm a, a huge history buff. That's why part of the reason I went to school on the East coast. And I think when you, when you go to the beginning of the tour, you know, downstairs and you see all the pictures and you see that this was used in world war two, it was, it's had, you know, celebrities on board from, you know, in past years, it's had royalty on board. I think it's just, you, you feel the magic when you're here and then the whole haunting thing. Yeah. Let's talk about that element. whole haunting thing. <laughs> You know, I've had a chance to get through a lot of the ship. Not all of it, but a lot of it. I got to tell you, I'm convinced it's haunted. Um, you could be. I've stayed here one night. And, and I, what happened? Well, I didn't see anything, but I definitely was afraid. <laughs> afraid of what? Shadows lurking. <laughs> yeah. And did you see shadows lurking? Maybe my mind did. I, it could have just been my imagination. <laughs> okay. But you're back. I, I'm back. I think it's daylight, so I'm safe. Um, <laughs> yeah. But no, sir, you go, this ship, just because of the shadows and because of the light and because of once you go down, you know, when, they, when they built ships like this in the 30s, light wasn't a big deal. I mean, I mean the, the actual corridors were not bright. They were dim. 
right? They were, yeah, and, they, and they still are. They still are, for sure. Yeah. And there's there's so many stories that are told about about uh, you know deckhands being killed and then showing up later up, you know, and, and saying goodbye and saying hello again. Yes. Right. Yeah, just looking at that empty pool is enough to make you at least think you saw you know, something. Yeah, every time you see the pool, it was an indoor pool. Yeah. It was an indoor pool. And every time I see that indoor pool, and which they do not fill. No, no, they leave it eerie on purpose. Yeah. Do they really? Because I really wish they'd fill it. They, if they lit it better and filled it, it would be cool. Maybe. It wouldn't really work for the haunted tour, though. No, that I they know. Do. And they, by the way, that haunted <laughs> tour is not just Halloween. You, anytime you walk around this ship, just... You know, walk slowly and keep turning around 360 because you're going to see something. Definitely. You're going the wrong way! He says we're going the wrong way! Oh, he's drunk! How do he know where we're going? Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. For those of you who think there's no culture west of the Hudson, I have news for you because my next guest actually came west of the Hudson from New Jersey out here where she became the co-founder of the Long Beach Museum of Art. And her name is Sue Ann Robinson. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So how did you come out to California? Don't say you flew, but I mean, I mean, how, what brought you out here? Well, as I was very interested in the art scene, I was coming from Washington, D.C., and I had already lived in New York and Southern California seemed to be where a lot was going on in the arts. And... Most people would not initially think that it would be in Long Beach. There are a lot of artists living in Long Beach, and Cal State Long Beach has the largest ceramics program, let's see, west of the Mississippi. Really? Yes. So this is eye-opening for a New Jersey girl. <laughs> well, I've traveled all over the country visiting museums and um, art exhibitions, so they've always been really uh, inspiring to me, so many of them. And... But for, you know, my mom grew up in Los Angeles and she was always telling me about how cool Long Beach used to be. And then Long Beach, it wasn't then cool. And then it became cool again. And it's cool now. It is. Uh, are you, do you have a lot of artists now who are moving here? Yes, there's a lot of opportunity for artists, not only to show their work here, but um, things like Pow Wow Long Beach last summer um, brought artists from all over the world. And there's a lot of activity going on in training, but also in finding a, an affordable studio. We're actually on the Queen Mary, which is full of art. No kidding. And um, from the Queen Mary, you can see the Long Beach Museum of Art, where I work. Have you investigated the art on the ship? Yes, actually, we did a program. The museum and the ship uh, did an educational program. We produced a booklet, talked about all the artwork. So. I mean, and they've been able to preserve most of that, too. Yes, it's really wonderful. Which, you know, is not often done. I mean, they, they, most ships get just broken up and that's it. But they, <laughs> you know, they didn't just sail the ship here. They sailed the ship here with everything that was still on it. Yes. Which is, you know, not often done, which is great to know that they did that. Yes. What's the biggest surprise in your museum right now? We have th three exhibitions by three artists. Um, they're all local artists. They're all women. The permanent collection, we have a selection of things on view, and all of those works are by women. And we are distinguished among a lot of American museums by having over 25% of our permanent collection be works by women. So a lot of museums don't get to say that. They have 10% or less, and they don't always well, you know, show works I'm, by women. I'm surprised that any museum would even measure that. 
Oh, yes. Well, there are a lot of women artists who definitely measure that. Uh, no, that, I, I got that part. But you know what I'm saying. The, you're the first person who actually gave me that breakdown of, of any kind of museum director or curator that I would know. Yeah. Well, I think part of my job is to know the permanent collection. And um, I love presenting it. And we have just a lot of very interesting work by um, women in all media, ceramics, textiles, paintings, sculpture, photography, and right now, even lenticulars. Explain. Lenticulars? Uh-huh. You know those little cards you used to get where you just tipped it one way or the other and you saw the little boy go up and down on the... Sure. That's a lenticular. And Barbara Strassen is an artist who uses lenticular technology so that when you're the viewer coming in to see her work, actually as you walk by it... It moves. It moves. That's like the artist Patrick Hughes. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, he does a lot of stuff. No matter where you are in the room, it moves with you. Yes. You know, my first experience with that, I, I don't know if you'd call it a lenticular, was in the Rembrandt Museum in, in Amsterdam. Oh, yeah, that's wonderful. With the, you know, the night watch. Yeah. No matter where you move those, I, he's looking at you. It's a little scary. <laughs> well, I think Barbara's very interested in having yeah. people notice what's going on around them and slow down long enough to look. She did a large piece that show you can see from across the street, but you can also get up very close to it. She calls it um, wallpaper for the 21st century. No kidding. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, sort of a, it's sort of an intentional deception. Yeah, I think it's, she's very interested in having people realize that part of looking at art means that you're really spending some time with it, and, and she succeeds in that. So we have a lot of that going on, and then the next exhibitions will be entirely different um, we've always collected and shown art being made by contemporary artists. Whatever artists are making today, that's often what we will be showing. So, And, and probably some of those artists be, are, would be considered outsiders. Yes. Right? Yes. But a lot of times we see, uh, for example, Harrison McIntosh just died at age 101. He was a ceramic artist from Southern California. Um, and we showed him very early in his career. And so we've done that a lot, whatever, whatever is going on. Exactly. Yeah. The museum is open how many days a week? Thursday through Sunday. Thursday evenings, it's free. That's what we wanted to hear. Friday, Friday all day, it's free. Wow. Saturdays and Sundays. And it has a wonderful restaurant with a great view. So you can have a great view inside the museum and you can have a great view outside. And if you go Thursday, it's <laughs> F-R-double-E. You know, everywhere you walk on this ship, and I've been on this ship probably 20 times, I'm discovering something new. Let me put that in perspective. I'm actually discovering something old. And joining me now knows where everything's hidden. He knows where everything's preserved because he's really not just a historical consultant for the Queen Mary. He's in charge of a lot of the preservation work that gets done here. And we've had him on the show before. Always welcome back again to John Thomas. Thank you, Peter. Glad to be here. I mean, when you think about old ships, and this ship was built when? 19, began in 1929 ended in 1936. Right. Yeah. So it started sailing in 36. Correct. So we're dealing with something that's essentially 80 years old. That's correct. And it sailed for how many years? Over 30. Okay, which for, for, which for an ocean liner, not a cruise ship, which for an ocean liner in those days was, was longer than normal. That's correct. And it also 
enjoyed, if you will, a stint as a great a ghost during World War II. That's right. A lot of ships were repainted. That's correct. In camouflage colors. And by the way, I was reminded of that during the Falklands War in 1982 when they took the QM2 and repainted it in, in camouflage colors to be a troop carrier down to South America. You're right. That's right. I know. And, uh, and, and when you think about a, a ship like the Queen Mary or the, or the QE2, where it had a first class and a second class service, can you imagine the battles going on on that ship between oh, yes. the officers and the enlisted men about who was going to eat in the Queen's Grill? Yes. Something yes. tells me they weren't eating Queen's Grill food. Probably not. Probably not. No, probably not. Okay, but when you take a look at what you have to do on a ship like this, not just to maintain it mechanically and to maintain it in terms of its structural integrity, what's the toughest thing you have to preserve on this ship? Well, currently we're learning that. Uh, there's a couple of studies underway that will give us a long-term perspective of the kinds of projects that you're talking about to preserve the integrity of the ship structurally as well as from a historic pr preservation standpoint. The first study was our conservation management plan that recommended another couple of studies that are underway, the historic structures report and the marine survey. And the marine survey is very critical. It's like taking the Queen Mary through an MRI sure. to really look at the ship. Corrosion. Corrosion, structural integrity, uh, opportunities Iron deterioration. Iron deterioration, yes. But, but then there's just the stuff that people don't think about, just the mirrors, the glass on the walls, the artwork. Yes, uh, our woodwork aboard the ship, yeah. just throughout the ship. And there's a lot of it. There By is. the way, no ship could be built today with that kind of woodwork. It would never pass fire inspection. It would not pass fire inspection. Ever. Fortunately, we're sprinklered, so we're in good shape here. Even if you were sprinklered today, you couldn't build that ship today. <laughs> That's correct. Right? There'd be some struggles. You go on the decks and you see all the wood on the decks, mm -hmm. right? Our teak, yes. Yeah. That's, yes. that's wood. That's all right, so you've got to preserve all that. Correct. But and you... preserving all that within the 24-7 operation of a hotel and an event destination, which is a complicates matters even further. Yeah, because you're doing weddings on this ship. You're doing business meetings on this ship, right? Yes, we do quite a few. We do over 200 weddings a year on the Queen Mary. Wow. Yeah. And that's just the people who are alive, not the ghosts. That's correct. Well, I'm sure a couple of ghosts get wedded every once in a while on the ship. I haven't actually, been, I haven't actually, been no, invited. No, no. A couple of ghosts actually perform the services. Uh, Come on, John. That, that may be the case as well. What's the most unique item that was been, that's been preserved on the ship? You know, I think the observation bar as a space. Uh, the, there's been several areas in, within the observation bar that we've, uh, we've attacked, re replacing and reinvenerating re the new um, uh, chairs and stools. Uh, is our next project, but right now we just completed the third phase with, that included the original light fixtures. So you're going back to Art Deco all the way. Correct, and we're using the original fixtures that have been in archive storage for many years. So you need to have somebody who understands that or they'll break them otherwise. Correct, so the, the care and feeding of every area of the ship is very, very important. From and, ex a maintenance standpoint. and expensive. Very expensive, very expensive. Now for me, my big love affair is with the bridge. Because you've got so much brass up there. Yes, it shines. And, and so, well, I was about to say, how much <laughs> brass polish are we using? Oh, uh, I would say gallons, <laughs> several <laughs> gallons, probably a month up there. You know, and part of these areas is to recognize what you want a nice patina to remain and what does get polished. And so that's the other uh, avenue of taking care of the ship but maintaining the kind of the historic in integrity from a, from a patina standpoint. And the other thing is this. I mean, if you go on a, on a modern cruise ship today, you can't even find a steering wheel. They don't exist. They don't. It, it's, it's basically, you know, joysticks and, yes. and pods. Yes, that's correct. But you've got, you've got some serious wheel operation up there. We do, and a large rudder to boot. <laughs> How big is the rudder? The rudder, I, I believe the rudder is over 35 feet. How, has, it ever been, has it ever been removed from the ship? Yeah, I believe it stayed on the ship during the entire conversion in the 70s. It so was, it's still there? Yes. 
And if you're turning the wheel on the bridge, does the rudder turn? No. Everything's locked up. Really? Just so the ship can't get out of Long Beach Harbor. We don't want to lose her. It's not going to get out of Long You guys are permanently stationed in the dockyard. Some ghosts. You're you know, welded to the station. What are you talking about? Some ghosts could take the ship for a joyride. We want to prohibit that. All right. Quickly before we run out of time. Yes. The biggest myth of the sh about the ship that you can dispel? Uh, that we don't sit in a saddle. That we actually float. You actually float? Yes. And we rise and go with the tide. And how much, how's the depth of the water here? Very deep. It's over 45 feet deep. And our... Our uh, displacement is about 30 feet deep. Wow. So yeah. if it's really low tide, you could scrape. We're, we always monitor that sort of thing, yes. You could scrape. We could, but so far we haven't. We're watching that all the time. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most-watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, early and ad-free on Wondery Plus.